everybody, friends. You're listening to How the West Was Cast, a podcast dedicated to the best of the Western movie genre. The vote you took the other night showed courage. You vote to stick together, that's just what you should do. Spider made a mistake. He went into town alone. Man alone's easy prey. Only by standing together are you going to be able to beat the LaHoods of the world. No matter what happens tomorrow, don't you forget that. Got a brave man there. Give him a decent burial. Preacher? You are going into town tomorrow, ain't you? That was Clint Eastwood in a scene from Pale Rider, one of many films you'll hear about on this episode of How the West Was Cast. Hello, my name is Matthew Chernoff, and I'm a screenwriter and an entertainment journalist in Los Angeles. And I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson, a film historian and the chair of the Department of Film and Media Arts at the University of Utah. Now, on today's show, we've got something a little special in store for you. Rather than discuss one specific movie, we're instead presenting a lecture titled Men of the West, Ford, Wayne, Leone, Eastwood. It's based on a talk that Andrew gave at the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts in November of 2017. The talk was first delivered in conjunction with Once Upon a Time, the Western, a massive multidisciplinary exhibition that explored the myths and conventions of the Western genre from the 19th century to the present. Andrew was part of that exhibition's curatorial team, serving as the film advisor. We'll include links in this episode's show notes for anyone who wants to learn more about the exhibition or the award-winning publication that accompanied it and that Andrew contributed to. And with that said, we hope you enjoy Men of the West, Ford, Wayne, Leone, Eastwood. Today, I'm going to talk to you about four men, John Ford, John Wayne, Sergio Leone, and Clint Eastwood. Each of these men was showcased in the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts exhibition, Once Upon a Time, the Western, and rightly so. It would be hard to pick four artists who had greater influence over the development of Western film than these men of the West. Doing justice to these four in a single podcast episode is a tall order. Too tall, probably. So instead of offering anything approaching a comprehensive account of each man's contributions to the Western, we'll save that for future episodes, I'm going to focus on some connections and oppositions between them. As anyone who has listened to How the West Was Cast, or read any of my writing will know, I believe that a lot of the conventional wisdom about Western movies is, well, wrong. This includes many accepted ideas about the Western's greatest filmmakers and stars, how movies are remembered, reflected in histories and other writing, is often far removed from how they were understood and experienced when they were first released. Recovering some of those original understandings and experiences is part of the project, and fun, of film history. I want to begin by telling you a little about each man and the westerns he made. Let's start with John Ford. The winner is... In the absence of the winner, John Wayne will accept the award for John Ford. One, isn't it? One. I keep remembering stagecoach. Long Voyage Home, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, and many other pictures that Mr. Ford directed me in. Naturally, as a ham, I'd remember the things that I was in, but I also remember How Green Was My Valley and The Informer, Grapes of Wrath, and other pictures. It makes me very grateful that he asked me to be his proxy and accept this award, not to receive the money, but the award for him. I'll take it to his home on Odin Street, 
place he's lived in for 35 years and proudly placed this on his mantle with five other previous Academy Awards. Must be great to have a shelf like that. John Ford, old master of American cinema and the director of such outstanding westerns as Stagecoach, My Darling Clementine, The Searchers, and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, as well as numerous other classic films, including The Informer, The Grapes of Wrath, How Green Was My Valley, and The Quiet Man. Ford was born as Sean Aloysius Ofini in Cape Elizabeth, Maine on February 1, 1894, the 13th child of Irish immigrants. This Irish background and upbringing is invoked by nearly every Ford biographer to explain the director's elusive and often abrasive personality and his perpetual stance as a self-styled outsider. Ford followed his older brother Francis to Hollywood in 1913 and was directing features by 1917. He didn't stop until 1966 with the release of his 125th and final film, Seven Women. Ford's body of work the Westerns in particular, is frequently interpreted as a reflection of the American zeitgeist and of the profound changes the nation underwent in the 20th century. Like many of his old Hollywood contemporaries, Ford was still alive in the late 1960s and early 1970s, and he had a great deal to say about his work. Sometimes. 11, take one. Take one? More than one take, will I? Shoot. Mr. Ford, you made a picture called Three Bad Men, which was a large-scale Western. You had a quite elaborate land rush in it. Mm-hmm. How did you shoot that? With a camera. <laughs> Isn't the Sunshine's Bright kind of a little picture that you made for yourself? Would that yeah. fall in the same? Uh-huh. Mr. Ford, I've noticed that the... Uh, that your view of the West has become increasingly sad and melancholy over the years. Uh, I'm comparing, for instance, Wagon Master to the man who shot Liberty Balance. Have you been aware of that change no. in mood? No. Now that I've pointed out, is there anything you'd like to say about it? I don't know what you're talking about. I don't... Can I ask you what what particular element about the Western appealed to you from the beginning? I wouldn't know. Would you agree that the point of uh, Fort Apache was that uh, tradition, the tradition of the army was more important than one individual? Cut. That interview is from director and Ford acolyte Peter Bogdanovich's documentary directed by John Ford. It's not only the most famous part of the film, but probably the most famous footage we have of the director. The montage has, of course, been edited by Bogdanovich for effect, and Ford was often much more talkative and reflective in interviews than he's here portrayed. But these two minutes have done more to establish Ford's personality than thousands of pages of biography, something Ford would no doubt be very happy about. No other major filmmaker identified himself so closely with the Western, and in film histories, the association between Ford and the Western is often so close that one can seem to merge into the other. In his seminal 1969 study of the genre, Horizons West, film scholar Jim Kitsis wrote, What gives the Western a particular thrust and centrality is its historical setting. It's being placed at exactly that moment when options are still open, the dream of a primitivistic individualism, the ambivalence of at once beneficent and threatening horizons, still tenable. For the filmmaker who is preoccupied with these motifs, the Western has offered a remarkably expressive canvas. Nowhere, of course, is the freedom that it bestows for personal expression more evident than in the cinema of John Ford. More than any other filmmaker, and perhaps more than any other artist, Ford crafted a powerful vision of the frontier that took hold in the popular imagination in the 20th century, and continues to shape our thinking about the American West. Ford worked with many actors over the course of his long career, but no collaboration was so consequential as his films with actor John Wayne. The second day on the picture, they 
there's uh, quite a big scene going on in which I have one line toward the end of the scene. In the meantime, to keep me busy in the background, he has me uh, washing my face and drying it. And he'd say, cut. All right. He'd look over at me and say, let's do it again. And I, you know, now I become conscious that he's uh, certainly paying a lot of attention to me with that scene going on over there. So finally I did. And he says, cut. Duke, you're dabbing your face. Can't you wash? And I said, I am washing. I'm doing this. What, what more can I do? I'm using the towel hard like that. What more can I do? Finally, all the crew, all the uh, yeah. actors, the cast was completely on my side. From then on, I had the cast helping me, you know, as my first time in the, really in the big time, working with so many top people. You think he planned and, it uh, that way? I know he planned it that way. He has a way of picking on actors when they're um, not too important a part of a scene in order to get them on the toes so they'll come in ready when they really have something to do. And then he handles you like a baby. No one is more closely associated with the Western in the popular imagination than John Wayne. From his deep magnetic drawl to his nimble swagger to his personal politics, the Duke was, for millions of 20th century moviegoers, the embodiment of the mythical Western hero. Wayne was born Marion Morrison in Winterset, Iowa, on May 26, 1907. He grew up in California, where he was a high school football standout, winning a scholarship to the University of Southern California. Always enamored with the movies, Duke spent his summers working in Hollywood, and soon left USC to work as a prop man at Fox Studios. There, his can-do attitude impressed director John Ford, who began giving him small parts in his films. Morrison's big break came in 1930, when director Raoul Walsh cast him as the lead in The Big Trail, an epic western about a wagon train to Oregon. Rechristened John Wayne, the 23-year-old actor cut a striking figure as buckskin-clad frontiersman Breck Coleman, even if Wayne's acting left something to be desired. Flame, will you undertake to lead us to that valley? I'd like nothing better, men. But our trail's fork here. I've got business that calls me back down the road Santa Fe. What business you follow, friend? I'm a trapper. Well, surely there's fur plenty out in that land beyond Oregon. Plenty. But I gotta kill me a pair of skunks. Back a piece on the road to Santa Fe. Wait, wait. Though not the misfire it is often described as, the big trail nevertheless failed at the box office, and Wayne spent the remainder of the decade honing his craft in low-budget westerns. His next break came in 1939, when Ford cast him in Stagecoach, an ensemble drama about a besieged stagecoach bound from Arizona to New Mexico. Hold it! Whoa, steady! Ho, ho! Hey, look, it's Ringo! Yeah. Hello, kid. Hello, Curly. Hi, uh, Buck. How's your folks? Oh, just fine, Ringo, except my grandfather came Shut up. up. Didn't expect to see you riding shotgun on this run, Marshal. Going to Lordsburg? I figured you'd be there by this time. No. Lame horse. Well, it looks like you've got another passenger. Yeah. I'll take the Winchester. You may need me in this Winchester, Curly. Saw a ranch house burning last night. You don't understand, kid. You're under arrest. As the boyishly virtuous Ringo Kid, Wayne delivered a poised performance that offered hints of the darkness that would characterize many of his later roles. That transition came with the 1948 release of director Howard Hawks's Red River. Burning. Dying of wagons. Burning. Where'd you come from? It was all burning. Only Indians around. Just all burning and smoking. How'd you get away? Smelling. They were burning everything. He's plumb out of his head. Just plain, I could see it. It was burning the wagons. People were screaming. I wouldn't do that again. Put that gun I down. I said, don't do that again. All right, Sonny. Well, I was just asking where you came. Don't ever trust anybody till you know them. I won't. After this... Thanks for telling me. All right. 
Now, how'd you get away? Playing the tyrannical rancher Tom Dunson, Wayne established what biographer Gary Wills calls the kind of role Wayne is mainly remembered for from his superstar days, the authority figure, the guide for younger men, the melancholy person weighed down with responsibility. These roles defined Wayne's career, and he would play variations of the melancholy authority figure, both on screen and off, until the end of his career. That career lasted well into the 1970s, meaning Wayne lived to see the emergence of new visions of the mythical American West. One of the most compelling of these visions came from an unlikely source, the Italian director Sergio Leone. He wants to recapture in Once Upon a Time in the West the magic of what he felt when he was a child, seeing those vast open spaces of the American Western. But at the same time, he didn't approve of their ideology very much. He thought they were too triumphalist and all about the American way and a man's got to do what a man's got to do, all the, all the ideologies of the American Western. So there's this funny paradox. He loves it to death, but at the same time, he wants to criticise it. So he wanted to make a movie that was a kind of homage to all the Westerns he loved, but turn them round a bit so they meant something different this time. That was the esteemed film scholar Sir Christopher Frayling, discussing Leone's 1968 masterpiece, Once Upon a Time in the West. The son of a famous director and a silent film actress, Leone, born January 3, 1929, cut his teeth in the commercial Italian film industry in the 1950s, writing and eventually directing historical sword and sandal fare with titles like The Last Days of Pompeii and The Colossus of Rhodes. Following the Second World War, the Italian film industry developed a process of hijacking popular American genres that could be produced inexpensively in Italy. The 1950s vogue in Hollywood for historical epics, like The Robe and The Ten Commandments, is what gave rise to Italian imitations like those written by Leone. The practice was to use Italian locations, crews, and casts, but to hire an American lead actor, someone audiences might recognize, but who wouldn't command a large salary. The best-known example is Steve Reeves, the former bodybuilder who shot to fame playing Hercules and other heroes of antiquity in over a dozen Italian films. When the popularity of the sword and sandal film began to wane in the early 1960s, Italian producers looked for the next genre they could appropriate. The availability of relatively inexpensive Spanish locations and extras, and the potential for films to be distributed in the United States, made the Western a good choice. But the first Italian-made Westerns were not successful, and so when Sergio Leone was offered the chance to write and direct an extremely low-budget Western, he didn't expect it to amount to anything. Over the course of three weeks, he produced a script about a nameless mercenary who plays two rival families against one another for his own gain. Cass, in the lead, was a little-known American television actor. Baxter's over there. Rojo's there. Me right in the middle. Where are you to what? Crazy bell ringer was right. Money to be made in a place like this. Mm. If you're thinking what I suspect, I tell you, don't try it. Which one of the two is the stronger? That actor was Clint Eastwood. The film was A Fistful of Dollars, and, to everyone's surprise, the film was a hit, begetting what we now call the Spaghetti Western. Leone and Eastwood would reteam for two more films, for a few dollars more in 1965, and The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly in 1966, after which Leone would helm two more westerns, Once Upon a Time in the West, 1968, and Duck, You Sucker, 1971. Rather than grinding it out in the commercial Italian film industry, making one or two films a year, Leone gained increasing control over his projects, and they in turn became more ambitious. And whereas Leone's Italian contemporaries were much more interested in using the Western to explore specifically Italian subject matter, what comes across more strongly in Leone's films is the myriad references to American Westerns. Leone used his encyclopedic knowledge of Hollywood Westerns to turn the genre on its head, contorting conventional iconography and scenarios into perverse, overblown spectacles of gunplay and death. Think, to name but one example, of the massacre of the McBain family near the beginning of Once Upon a Time in the West. The family of Irish immigrants are outside their home, preparing for the arrival of their new wife and mother, Jill. Suddenly, everything goes deathly quiet. A flock of sage hens flutter to the sky. A gunshot rings out. The family's patriarch, Brett, 
turns to see his daughter Maureen clutch her stomach and collapse. He runs to his daughter, but is likewise gunned down. His son is then shot and killed. His youngest son then emerges from the house to see a gang of five men in dusters slowly emerge from the brush. What are we going to do with this one, Frank? You've called me by name. Like the bond between John Ford and John Wayne, it's impossible to speak of Sergio Leone without addressing his leading star, Clint Eastwood, who, after his three films with Leone, returned to the United States and became not only one of the biggest movie stars of all time, but an acclaimed director as well. Clinton Eastwood Jr. was born on May 31, 1930, in San Francisco. After what was, by most accounts, a lonely and isolated childhood spent moving from one northern California town to another as his parents looked for work during the Great Depression, the family settled in Oakland. Eastwood excelled at piano and swimming, and served as a swim instructor in the Army during the Korean War. Encouraged by friends to become an actor, Eastwood made his way to Los Angeles after the war and signed with Universal Studios as a contract player, Soon he began landing bit parts in genre pictures, like the 1955 horror sequel, Return of the Creature. Doc, didn't you say that among the lower animals there were no natural enemies, as long as they were well-fed? Yeah, something like that. Well, maybe so, Doc, but there were four rats in there when I changed my lights. Now there's only three. It's my considered opinion that rat number four is sitting inside that cat. Are you sure you fed them all this morning? Sure, I always feed them. I... Though he was eventually dropped by Universal, Eastwood was then cast in a new Western television series called Rawhide, about a group of cowboys solving various problems while driving cattle along the Sedalia Trail. Rawhide steadily became a top-rated show, turning the unknown Eastwood into a television star. But film stardom still remained out of his reach until he was handed a screenplay written by an aforementioned unknown Italian director named Leone. Though reluctant at first to read a script for a Western to be shot by an Italian company in Spain, Eastwood was convinced by his agent to give the screenplay a once-over. He was immediately drawn into what was an unorthodox take on the familiar Western, on the condition that he be allowed to cut some of his dialogue, a rare instance of an actor requesting fewer lines, and to wear his own jeans and other costume pieces, Eastwood traveled to Spain to film what became the first in a trilogy of Italian Westerns. And the rest, as they say, is history. Eastwood's career has now spanned seven decades, and he is known not only for his acting, but also directing, and has been nominated for the Best Director Academy Award four times, 
winning twice. To date, Eastwood has directed 39 feature films, and though he is now 91 years old, shows little signs of slowing down. Although Eastwood has worked across multiple genres, his career continues to be defined by his westerns, the final four of which, High Plains Drifter, The Outlaw Josie Wales, Pale Rider, and Unforgiven, he directed himself. In each of his American westerns, we find Eastwood inserting that powerful persona, the man with no name, bequeathed upon him by Leone, into the more familiar spaces and stories of the American western. Welcome to Texas, Mr. Lone Waddy. I guess we ain't going to see that little Navajo girl again. Oh, I guess not. I kind of liked her. Then it's always like that. Like what? Whenever I get to liking someone, they ain't around long. I notice when you get to disliking someone, they ain't around for long either. How did you know which one was going to shoot first? Well, that one in the center, he had a flap holster, and he was in no hitch in hurry. And the one second from the left, he had scared eyes. He wasn't going to do nothing. But that one on the far left, he had crazy eyes. Figured him to make the first move. How about the one on the right? Never paid him no mind. You were there. I could have missed. Though Eastwood's output may pale numerically in comparison to that of Ford or Wayne, he is unquestionably the most iconic Western star and most influential Western filmmaker of the last three decades of the 20th century. In sketching the backgrounds and work of each of these men, certain connections emerge, as do certain oppositions. Ford and Wayne are inextricably linked, as are Leone and Eastwood. But Ford and Wayne, together, are likely to strike many as opposed to Leone and Eastwood. The former, director and star, epitomize what some might call the classic Western, while the latter, director and star-turned-director, seem to represent a response to that classic tradition. On the one side, we find a belief in the goodness of society and in the ability of the self-sacrificing hero to help establish civilization in the wilderness. On the other, we find a skepticism that society can be anything but corrupt, and the only hope is not to join civilization, but to get from it what you can and leave. Consider the McBain massacre scene from Once Upon a Time in the West, Here's what actor Henry Fonda said about this scene in a 1975 interview. Sergio Leone asked me to do a film and sent me the script and I just couldn't believe it. And I met him, had lunch with him, and I hadn't seen his early films, so I didn't know Sergio Leone's reputation. And he realized I hadn't seen him, so he arranged for a screening and I saw about three and a half hours of his early films with Clint Eastwood. And one of them involved... Uh, an actor friend of mine, and uh, I called him, and uh, he said, don't miss it, just go. To hell with the script, just go. You'll fall in love with him, he's marvelous. So I accepted. And in the months before I went, I kept thinking, now, this heavy son of a bitch, how am I going to... I finally went to a, an optometrist and had... Uh, contact lenses made to make my baby blues brown. And I grew a mustache with a little divot that looked a little bit like the guy that shot Lincoln. I'm trying to look like a son of a bitch. And I arrive at the studio in Rome, and Sergio takes one look at me and says, off. He was buying the baby blues. He wanted, and I didn't know why, until I realized in my opening scene in the film, and you see five or six long robed brimmed hat characters that you don't recognize, but just ominous looking, converging from the sagebrush with rifles and handguns. And this terrible moment that she just watched a farm family massacred. 
and they start to walk towards you, converging towards you, and then the camera switches back to the little boy who's standing there just petrified, watching these people come to him. And then into the foreground of the little boy comes a figure. The camera very slowly is coming around, and Sergio Leone had cast me because he could imagine at this moment the audience saying, Jesus Christ, it's Henry Fonda! <laughs> this scene and Fonda's interpretation of both it and Leone's motivations captures Sergio Leone's popular reputation as a so-called revisionist filmmaker. The audience knows Fonda as a hero from westerns like My Darling Clementine, in which he played lawman Wyatt Earp, as well as from other films like Young Mr. Lincoln. And what does Leone do? He turns Fonda, with those baby blue eyes, into a child killer, completely subverting the moral order that supposedly governs the classic Western. Or does he? The scene certainly plays this way, if you have an idea about the roles Fonda played previously. But what if you had been actually watching Henry Fonda in Westerns for the preceding 20 years? How might your perspective differ? In Fire Creek, a lesser-known Western released in 1967, one year before, Once Upon a Time in the West, Fonda plays Bob Larkin, the ruthless leader of an outlaw gang that holds up in a town run by part-time sheriff Johnny Cobb, played by James Stewart. In a scenario that recalls High Noon, the town's citizens refuse to stand up to the gang or to come to the aid of their lawman in his time of need, leaving Cobb to face Larkin and his men alone. But if you were all here... choice. We didn't bother running. No reason to run. Where you find no law, you set your own. We tried him, found him guilty. Maybe nobody can keep you from leaving this town, but I'm following. I'm following. We get to a marshal. I'm going to charge you with murder. Wherever you go, Larkin, I'm following. And I'm going to watch all four of you hang. A little worrying over that leg will slow you down. In Warlock a cynical update of the Wyatt Earp story from 1959, Fonda plays an itinerant gun-for-hire whose ruthless methods prove too much for the townsfolk of Warlock to stomach. Stand back, deputy. Sorry, Blaisdell, it's time. Time? You can't stay. Trouble and death follow you. Warlock's had enough of both. You running me out of town, deputy? No. I'm just saying I'll have to arrest you in the morning. So I'm asking you to get out before then. Nobody tells me that or asks me. I come and go as I please. No longer, Mr. Blaisdell. I'll have to come after you in the morning. Come shooting if you do. I'll do that. You have to. In Anthony Mann's The Tin Star from 1957, Fonda's pragmatic bounty hunter Morgan Hickman gets a cool reception when he brings in an outlaw, dead rather than alive. You don't like outlaws brought in dead? Our officers of the law bring in their prisoners alive. Your officer of the law didn't bring in Jamerson at all. I'm not the law. I work inside it for money. Same as you do if you're in a legal business. I believe the banking business is legal. I'm also mayor. My friends here are businessmen. Except for Judge Thatcher and Dr. McCord. You got a bone to pick with a freight company, not with me. They put a hunk of money on him, Jamerson said. He robbed the freight office, killed the agent. Wanted him dead or alive, which is kind of a hint, sounds like to me. We're not here to argue, Hickman. This is a law and order town. Collect your money and get out. Suits me fine. How soon can I collect? 
or consider Fonda's portrayal of Colonel Owen Thursday in Ford's Ford Apache from 1948, one of the first films to question the legend of George Armstrong Custer. He is worse than war. No mata solo a los hombres. He not only killed the men, también a las mujeres, but the women, a los niños, and the children, y a los viejos, and the old ones. Esperábamos que nuestro gran padre blanco nos protegiera. We looked to the great white father for protection. Él nos dio una muerte lenta. He gave a slow death. No regresaremos a su posesión. We will not return to your reservation. Mientras esté ese hombre. While that man is there. O otro como él. Or anyone like him. Quítelo. Y hablaremos de paz. Send him away and we will speak of peace. Si se queda. If you do not send him away. Habrá guerra. There will be war. Y por cada uno de nosotros que usted mate. And for each one of us that you kill. Morirán diez hombres blancos. Ten white men will die. Are you threatening Don't us? Don't interrupt, sir. I'll not sit here and be threatened. Beaufort. No preliminary nonsense with him. No ceremonial phrasing straight from the shoulders, I tell you. Do you hear me? They're a calcitrant swine. They must feel it. He's only speaking the truth, sir. Is there anyone in this regiment that understands an order when it's given? What does the colonel wish me to say, sir? Tell them I find them without honor. El coronel encuentra sin honor. Tell them they're not talking to me, but to the United States government. No está hablando él, sino al gobierno americano. Tell them that government orders them to return to their reservation. El gobierno lo ordena que regrese a su reservación. And tell them if they have not started by dawn, we will attack. Y le dan el tell them that. Alba, si no atacará. Fonda certainly played his share of heroes, but he also made a clear, concerted effort over the course of his career to select roles that offered him the opportunity to question the standard of frontier valor his character displayed in My Darling Clementine. And even that role is not straightforwardly heroic. Consider Tag Gallagher's account of Fonda's Earp in his seminal essay on the Western, Shootout at the Genre Corral. Rather than the charming, noble hero described by most critics, Gallagher persuasively casts her plainly as a self-righteous prig whose badge hides a near-psychopathic lust for violent revenge, who, in the final showdown, morally abdicates his lawful right to kill by declining official assistance, calling his feud strictly a family affair, and who, at film's conclusion, abandons the entire community, a patently dire ending that no amount of requisite Hollywood happy ending gloss can disguise. What kind of a town is this, anyway? Selling liquor to Indians. Put a knot on his head bigger than a turkey's egg. Indian, get out of town and stay out. Leone's putative subversion of Fonda's heroic persona in Once Upon a Time in the West would not have been much of a shock to either moviegoers familiar with the actor's career or those who frequented westerns in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. It's not a giant leap to go from shooting Jimmy Stewart, Fonda's real-life best friend, in 1967, to shooting a child in 1968. Looked at this way, Leone, with his obsessive fixation on earlier westerns, is offering less a distinct break from earlier periods in the genre's history than a knowledgeable continuation of them. A focus on such continuities has the added benefit of indicating the surprising darkness found in earlier westerns. John Cowelty, one of the pioneering scholars of not only the Western film, but American popular culture, notes how the Western landscape in the 20th century films of filmmakers like John Ford contrasts with those depicted in 19th century paintings of artists like Albert Bierstadt. Famous works like Bierstadt's Emigrants Crossing the Plains from 1867, depicting a train of covered wagons moving through a verdant valley at sunset, convey not only the size and spectacle of the mythical West, but also a sense of hopefulness as the emigrants move towards a new and promising future. Kowelty compares such scenes to those in Ford's stagecoach. Here, the iconic Western landscape, Monument Valley specifically, is as richly symbolic as ever. But rather than evoking religious awe or pure romantic passion, the majestic rock formations of Monument Valley are richly enigmatic. They do not beckon the pilgrims onward. They dwarf them. Potential threats do not rest idly in full view in the background. 
they conceal themselves within the earth itself, ready to expel intruders. This western landscape does offer the promise of regeneration, but also the threat of danger, even death. And fittingly so, as Stagecoach is a film whose happy ending sees the hero and his lady leave, not just the town, but the country, saved from the blessings of civilization, as character Doc Boone puts it. Ford's westerns from at least Stagecoach, if not before, do evidence a faith in the transformative power of community, but also a deep skepticism of civilization and its institutions, especially in their tendency towards corruption and their capacity to eject misfits and outcasts. The opening of Ford's The Searchers has the outcast returning home. A woman opens the door to the family home and, out of the towering wilderness, in the distance, a specter appears. He rides a pale horse and, as in the book of Revelations, death follows with him. The man is the woman's brother-in-law, a man called Ethan Edwards. A day later, the woman and most of her family will be massacred by Comanche Indians, who will kidnap her youngest daughter, Debbie. Ethan and his nephew will spend the next five years searching for her across the American West. Finally, they'll come face to face with the man they have been tracking, the war chief, Scar. This is the great cicatrice. Watch his car, eh? Plain to see how you got your name. You big shoulders. Young one, he who follows. You speak pretty good American for a Comanche. Someone teach you? Uh, Tisha, Benny, eh? Temoe is right. We come to trade. Only not out here. I don't stand talking in the wind. You speak good command. Someone teach you? You stay out of here. Not likely. Through editing, dialogue, and costume, Ford doesn't oppose his hero and villain, as we might expect him to. He instead mirrors them, completely subverting the moral order that is supposed to govern the classic Western. It's the hero's superior savagery that helps him triumph in the end. The Searchers is a Western where the hero, played by none other than John Wayne, scalps his Indian adversary. The film's penetrating exploration of America's heart of darkness and the nuance and complexity of Wayne's portrayal of Ethan Edwards are but two reasons why The Searchers, perhaps more than any other film, continues to haunt the American popular imagination. The Searchers takes us to places that few other directors and actors would go, in the 1950s, or before, or after. Leone doesn't go there, and neither does Eastwood. As I suggested earlier, Eastwood's American Westerns can instead be viewed as what-if type exercises. In a sense, we see what would happen if Eastwood's Man with No Name, developed over the course of Sergio Leone's Dollars trilogy, were inserted into the scenarios of famous Westerns, to take revenge against those who wronged earlier Western heroes. After two initial and somewhat uneven acting efforts in this vein, Hang 'em High and Joe Kidd, Eastwood refined his procedure of melding elements of the Italian and American Western together over the course of four Westerns in which he not only starred, but also directed. In The Outlaw Josie Wales, for example, Eastwood stars as a Missouri farmer whose wife and son are killed and home destroyed in a savage raid by a band of red-leg Yankee guerrillas during the Civil War. Wales joins up with a company of rebels and sets out to combat the Northerners. 
Refusing to surrender at the conclusion of the war, Wales is hunted by the Union army as he makes his way westward. His pursuers include the soldiers who murdered his family. He's unable to turn and fight them, however, because he continually finds himself in the company of those who need his protection. In presenting Josie Wales, thus as a last fighting rebel of the Civil War, the film offers an updated take on the Western's familiar Jesse James narrative. Only Wales, unlike James, meets a heroic rather than tragic end. The film also invokes Ford's The Searchers in a number of ways. The film is about the hero's quest for vengeance following a traumatic attack on his family, and Eastwood often stages and frames the film's action in ways that recall Ford's film. But Wales is a very different character than John Wayne's Ethan Edwards. In The Searchers, for example, Edwards is driven by racist hatred for his Indian adversary, Scar. But Wales is able to explain to Ten Bears, chief of a tribe who has been attacking his party, that they share a common enemy. I ain't promising nothing extra. I'm just giving you life and you're giving me life. And I'm saying that men can live together without butchering one another. It's sad that governments are chafed by the double tongues. There is iron in your words of death for all Comanche to see. And so there is iron in your words of life. No signed paper can hold the iron. It must come from men. The words of ten bearers carries the same iron of life and death. It is good that warriors such as we meet in the struggle of life or death. It shall be life. Eastwood's final Western, 1992's Unforgiven, doesn't update a particular film so much as respond to more general trends in the genre. The film sees the indomitable gunfighter, who many celebrated Westerns of the preceding 30 years told viewers never actually existed, return in the end to brutally avenge the murder of his only friend. the fella owns this shithole. You fat man. Speak up. Uh, I own this establishment. Bought it from Greeley for a thousand dollars. You better clear out of there. Yes, sir. Just hold it right there. Hold it! Well, sir, you are a cowardly son of a bitch. You just shot an unarmed man. Well, he should have armed himself. He's going to decorate his saloon with my friend. You'd be William Money out of Missouri. Killer women and children. That's right. I've killed women and children. Killed just about everything that walks or crawled at one time or another. And I'm here to kill you, little Bill. For what you did to Ned. In these and other ways, Eastwood, as director and star, act as a sort of bridge between the Italian westerns of Sergio Leone and the Hollywood western of the 40s and 50s. But he also reasserts some of the genre's values that some westerns of the 60s and 70s criticized as outdated. Out of vengeance comes an improbable reconciliation between competing influences, but also a restoration of relatively traditional values. Thank you. 
The dichotomy between the classic and revisionist Western is, of course, a false one. Popular genres are in a constant state of revision, with their stories and iconographies being reconfigured and recombined in an endless play of repetition and variation. As Kitsis says, and as I've hopefully shown, the Western was indeed a remarkably expressive canvas upon which many of the 20th century's greatest filmmakers and actors did their best work. What I've also hopefully explained is how the Western, and in particular earlier Westerns, are often far more complex than retrospective criticism might lead us to believe, and that the experience of watching films in real time is often very different from historical accounts of that same process. Film history and criticism tends to focus on influential directors. The average viewer, however, is much more interested in stars. It's fitting, then, that the Western's greatest star is the one who came closer than anyone else to expressing in words what millions of moviegoers have felt for generations. Westerns, the Duke once said, are closer to art than anything else in the motion picture business. Well, that wraps up this episode, but before you go, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Western Podcast. That's at, as in the at symbol, Western Podcast, all one word. Tell us about what subjects you'd like us to cover on future episodes, and we'll do our best to make that happen. Also, if you enjoy our show and want to help support it, the best way you can do that is by subscribing to it on whatever platform you use. Simply click the subscribe button and you'll never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Matthew Chernoff, and you've been listening to How the West Was Cast. Well, that was our show. We thank you kindly for listening and hope you'll come back again real soon. Till then, keep your saddle oiled and your guns greased. We'll be seeing you. 